0: This is May, <clears throat> May 10th, 2020, Mother's Day, and uh, I'm going to devote much of this Show to looking with eyes wide open at the suffering that we're seeing through this pandemic. You know, we have these what we call the twofold reality in in Buddhism. Uh there's on the one hand there's the absolute or there's the realm of non-differentiation, and on the other is the relative and of course the world of differentiation. <clears throat> From the absolute perspective, there's just this here, now. Nothing else. No there or then. No others, suffering. There are no, from this realm of the Absolute, there are no consequences to anything. There's no causation at all. Each one of us is sitting at the zero point. and for those of us who are privileged enough and by that i mean uh, financially secure enough or uh, and or retired or uh, with a low cost of living because of having few wants getting able to live simply for such of us uh, we may very much be enjoying this period of lockdown. Someone <clears throat> spoke even of, the, he use the word contentment. He said this, this feeling, never felt such contentment, um, not having to strive to, not having the stress of work and others to Negotiate with very that this is the this is the contentment that comes with simple living. We know such contentment in Sashin as well. I mentioned uh, uh, two or three weeks ago, this Sangha member who said he woke up. He woke up in the morning and in this first, very first thought, very first two seconds of consciousness still in bed, eyes closed that saying came to mind it was the best of times it was the worst of times it was the opening opening lines of A Tale of Two Cities by Charles Dickens we certainly know how what we're going through now is the worst of times but we're gonna look more closely at that. <clears throat> but it can also be the best of times. So if you're fortunate enough to have be able to live very simply without needing many material things or without having to buy many things and to get by, uh wonderful. But we don't just live in this realm of the zero point, of only here and now, <clears throat> no others. In the Three Pillars of Zen, uh, Harada Roshi uh, draws two perpendicular lines that intersect. <clears throat> and he says the vertical line. You can consider time and the horizontal line, space. And each one of us lives at the intersection of those two. But the vertical line is all time, all time into the past, into the future, and space equally is immeasurable space. So we partake of other times, and other places. And this is where we have the mandate in the Mahayana Buddhism, of which Zen is a part, the mandate to be able to find a way to help others. Starting with awareness. We can't deny The side of others, their then, future, others who don't have our socio economic privileges. This we could say is the, the heart aspect of the Dharma, the zero point just this, that you could say is the Hara aspect. That's our center. The Hara is our center vertically and our center horizontally, literally, physically. When we are completely centered in the Hara, as we can experience in sitting, Sashin especially, Then there's just this. But we're not beings of just horror. We have hearts. We have heads where we can think about others and their suffering. Think about it without dwelling on it. Our very physical existence is living proof of the truth of interdependence. Again, the two lines, vertical, time, horizontal, space. Even if we had the skills, and who's going to claim to have these skills? Even if we had the skills to live off the grid, so we didn't need anyone else. We weren't dependent on anyone else. We wouldn't even be without our mothers. Happy Mother's Day. We wouldn't even be without our mothers, our parents, who fed us and clothed us and raised us through years of self-sacrifice. Or even if they weren't our biological parents, then other parents, step parents, or uh, the help of social services. We can't deny that we have gotten a lot of help, even to the point where we can live off the grid. So, Let's say, for people who are experiencing this contentment, <clears throat> at least for the time being, guilt might come up. I talked to someone in the sangha who admitted that they had some guilt, being as happy as they were, but she also acknowledged that guilt doesn't really help anyone it's not a it's not a thing in dharma practice. We see no particular value for guilt. This can be a a crippling and uh, toxic emotion. It can come up, of course. We can't just will it away. But let's go beyond guilt and just consider the value of, yes, awareness of other's suffering. Awareness is everything. If there's there is no such thing as sin in in Zen or buddhism any any text that uses the word any Buddhist text that it's translated the word sin is uh is missing the mark We don't have that, but the closest thing to it would be a lack of awareness an obliviousness to the to, to others. At least this is in the in the Mahayana school, where this rests on the the bodhisattva vows. In our <clears throat> in our occasional ceremonies of aid, the famine relief ceremony or other such ceremonies. These are ways of also of opening our eyes um, with a famine relief ceremony how many of us have have really experienced involuntary hunger? But then we need to open our eyes and not be in denial about how much terrible hunger there is in the world now more than ever. So we in our ceremonies of babe, we have these photo, we place a photo on the altar as a way of helping us imagine what that really is. The pain of hunger. Involuntary hunger. Again, imagination. That has no place in uh, in the purest kind of Zen concentration. Uh, the uh, just this. Zero point. But we don't we we it's not the whole picture, and there's value to being able to imagine this is what many people are saying now that our bungled federal government response to the virus reflects a failure of imagination, which is what they said also about uh nine eleven the terrorist attacks nine eleven this unwillingness, not just inability, the unwillingness to look ahead and see what's coming. So I'm going to unapologetically read now about from two articles, one about hunger. This uh, came out in the New York Times two days ago, May 8th, and is written by a, uh, a Virginia Soul Smith. It's a hyphenated name. Who's the author of a book called The Eating Instinct? And the name of the article is I Know You're Angry with Me Right Now Because You're Hungry. I'm just going to pluck out a few sentences from here just to lay out what millions of our, just even our fellow citizens, never mind the developing countries, but in our own country, The the problem of food insecurity. She reports that nearly one in five children, that's children 12 and younger, are not getting enough to eat. One in five. Uh, I I would guess that in Rochester it's worse. Rochester, last I heard, had the highest rate of child poverty in the country. Our own Rochester, at least the highest number one child poverty of uh, among cities of its size at the very least, but I think maybe it was as a percentage of all cities what a what an indictment, what a tragedy she says that the in homes with children now that's a little narrower. In homes with children, food insecurity reached almost 35%. In 2018, 37 million Americans met criteria for food insecurity. Meanwhile farmers, which mostly means agribusiness, are dumping milk and plowing under the spring crops already. It's a terrible problem of systemic uh, problem of distribution. One of the many things that this pandemic is exposing and that hopefully we can address, we can do something about. <clears throat> There's an organization by, uh, called Hungry Free America it reports that 37 percent of parents reported cutting the size of meals or skipping meals for their children because they did not have enough money for food. That is between the statistic is from mid March to mid April. And already, before the pandemic, uh, we, the, the head of the uh, of this hunger free America, reported that we had a we had a bigger hunger and poverty problem in this country than any industrialized nation on the planet. Skipping down a few paragraphs, she reports that the, longer, the longer-term impact on child development, this is one of the terrible things about hunger, can affect the brain and the development of the child and the emotional health of families Many parents reported going all day without eating. Mothers in food-insecure households were more likely to report depressive symptoms than mothers who had enough to eat. And depressed mothers were less likely to read stories, show affection, and offer other interactions critical to a young, child's brain development." So you can see what is coming down the pike in five or ten or more years, the, the consequences of this in terms of, adult, of the adults who are now children. The studies also show that children who experienced household food insecurity may have higher rates of attention issues, anxiety, and behavioral outbursts. By age five, they say children are old enough to understand the pressures parents are facing. They'll try to squash the younger sibling from asking for seconds because there isn't enough or they share their school lunches with their parents. This is terrible. I one woman in this, they reported that she often ate nothing but lettuce sprinkled with orange juice to make sure her children were fed. Again, this is this is not meant in the least to make anyone feel guilty. That's the last thing we, we we need to draw from this. It's not helpful. Who does it help to feel guilty? But of course we can always look for ways that we might help. Even if it's just writing a check to our very um, respected uh, food link, local. Maybe it's not only local. Next article. Now, this isn't just focused on hunger, but it lays out what's coming, not just the rest of this year, but in Subsequent years. Here too, there might be people who would suggest that uh, this could just leave people depressed, what I'm about to read. And it's a calculated risk. Depression also doesn't help anyone, just like guilt. But I think we we get so much misinformation. We hear so much, especially this past month, past past couple of weeks, about how we're gonna we're gonna get through this soon, as our president says, very soon, and uh, things are gonna turn around. Well, let's let's consider that. Uh, this is an article. <clears throat> called The Storm We Can't See by Garrett Graff. This is in the Washington Post, also two days ago, May 8th. (coughs) He's a, a former editor of Politico magazine and the author of Raven Rock, the story of the U.S. government's secret plan to save itself while the rest of us die. Hmm. Another long article, uh, longer than the previous one, but again, I'll just be uh, pulling out some things that uh, we need to consider. These are, a lot of this is based on projections, models, and uh, as we're all learning, Models are only as good, the predictions of models are only as good as the data that is fed into them. Still, let's hear. He reports that new government estimates show we might be facing 3,000 daily deaths by the end of the month. The end of May. This month, This is the equivalent of uh, a 9-11 scale tragedy every day. 33 million Americans have lost jobs. That's the uh, worst since the Great Depression. One quarter of American companies have closed an almost 15 percent unemployment rate and let's also consider that there are far more black latino and native households that are financially impacted people of color make up an outsized share of essential workers essential workers who of course risk exposure while earning low wages with few benefits. He poses the question, how can the government help get these people back to work? The president's answer underscores how out of touch the federal response has been. He repeats the notion that it's up to governors to organize coronavirus testing. Someone said this would be like during World War II, uh, FDR, Roosevelt, uh, leaving it up to each state to organize its own militias to fight the war. It's terrible, terribly misguided, if not plain. evil again the the colossal failure of imagination to see what it takes to deal with this unprecedented threat worldwide threat i think it was uh, goethe the german philosopher who said to perceive things in the germ is intelligence that word germ is especially potent in the, under the circumstances. And then he outlines the difficulties ahead. <coughs> First, the bailout. After the initial $350 billion allotment vanished in days, Congress threw an additional $320 billion into the Paycheck Protection Program the effort to keep smallish businesses from firing employees for roughly eight weeks. By the way, uh, we just managed, thanks to the relentless efforts of Scott, our financial manager, we just managed to uh, procure uh, money from the Paycheck Protection Program. Again, we're we're among the lucky ones, but this will help the uh, huge, huge financial uh, hit we're going to take this year. And he says, that just means companies, including many I've spoken to, are planning June layoffs. Second, American education. Universities are forfeiting room and board fees, lucrative spring sports seasons, and the elective surgeries at teaching hospitals that balance their budgets. Many, if not all, colleges and universities will probably have to nix the fall semester. Across the country, it's easy to imagine that the nation's 4,000 colleges and universities might require a $200 billion bailout just to finish out the calendar year. Third, states and cities are going broke thanks to the costs of responding to the crisis from unemployment claims to boosting hospital capacity and purchasing protective equipment, as well as the collapse of income, sales and meal tax payments. That will be true for every single state, every single county, every single city, village and town in the country. Unlike the federal government, which can deficit spend with abandon, state and local governments must balance their budgets, meaning these holes must be closed immediately by federal aid, budget cuts, or tax increases. Of course, those bring consequences such as a fall off of social services that will slow the eventual recovery. fourth economic forecasts haven't even begun to reckon with how the new social distancing rules will affect employment and he he suggests that we imagine that every there's that word again imagine that every restaurant and bar in america can reopen next week under rules that limit their capacity to 50 percent imagine too that they can make ends meet in this scenario unlikely, he says, and that people feel comfortable patronizing them, also unlikely, until a vaccine is widely available. In the best-case scenario, with 50% of the customers, you need only 50% of the waiters, somaliers, hostesses, and cooks, meaning millions of restaurant jobs will disappear for months or years. There are, according to industry statistics, about 15 million people employed in restaurants alone a workforce larger than the population of Pennsylvania and that's just one business sector there's the rest of the hospitality and travel industry hotels and airlines are operating at single-digit capacity and many hotels have closed outright and what he calls the world-altering collapse of oil prices and and how that will hit the once economic bright spot of the US shale industry. And then there's the horrors of an agriculture industry that is dumping milk and plowing under spring crops thanks to structural distribution problems even as hunger crisis mounts. And then there are the industries that rely on crowded spaces such as sports, movies, concerts and other entertainment, nor the second and third order effects on adjacent industries like aircraft maintenance, nor the businesses that have simply closed their doors forever after weeks of financial duress. And none of this, he says, anticipates the effects of the feared second wave this fall and winter. Oh. So the the $2 trillion rescue package that has come, come out of Congress so far, he suggests, is paltry. Truly stabilizing the economy might take something in the range of $5 trillion to $7 trillion to cover just the next four to five months. Because a vaccine is still only theoretical and could take 18 months to arrive en masse. Skipping a couple of paragraphs, he says, having failed to prepare for the epidemic as it loomed overseas... The United States now finds itself in the position of mounting the worst response in the developed world. Months into the crisis, we're not even getting the basics right. Other countries are running circles around us when it comes to testing and contact tracing, which all public health experts agree are key to addressing the short term challenges. Then he looks back to the Great Depression, which he said it took enormous creativity and agility by Franklin Roosevelt's New Dealers. It required massive new social programs, employment efforts that transformed the country and targeted individual industries, right down to literally paying writers to write about the Great Depression. The federal response to that crisis also underscores how large and long the U.S. government's present-day interventions might need to be. When FDR ran for re-election in 1936, that's four years into his New Deal, unemployment still stood above 16%. This is very sobering. For those of you who are already whining about being feeling depressed, uh, come on! Don't indulge yourself with that. We have to see what we're up against. And we you have a way of dealing with the depression, starting by not dwelling on these things. It's not, the last thing you want to do is carry around all these statistics with you and uh, being cut off from where you are, here and now. There's a koan in the Shouyoroku, the Book of Equanimity, that uh, made me think of this, this contradiction, apparent contradiction between being fully here and now and being aware of past and future. This is number 81 in the Shori Roku, Xuansha reaches the province. Xuansha came to Pudian province and was welcomed with lavish entertainment. The next day he asked the head monk, Xiao Tang, all the revelry of yesterday. Where has it gone? Xiao Tang held out a corner of his robe. Shaw said, there's no connection at all. We need to gird ourselves for what's to come. Unless you just scoff at all of these predictions, all of these models by epidemiologists and other scientists, how's that going to work for you? We'll find out. Meanwhile, what can we do besides daily sitting, which is our anchor, it is our center. If we have a tendency to get depressed about what has happened, what's coming, what's going on right now, it's going to be less. It's going to be mitigated by sitting. and. Who knows what might come of this? We don't know. We can look at what at these things that look so frightening, but who's to say whether unimagined wonderful things can come from this? I'm pulling a couple paragraphs from a David Brooks' column, I don't even know when it was. He says this particular plague hits us at exactly the spots where we are weakest and exposes exactly those ills we had lazily come to tolerate. We're already a divided nation and the plague makes us distance from one another. We define ourselves too much by our careers and the plague threatens to sweep them away. So there is an example of how Zen practice grants us a bigger perspective, the big picture. How much do we want to bind ourselves to our jobs, our occupations, in terms of our identity? That's a dangerous thing to do. As many, many Millions are already finding out. But then he points out, already there's a shift of values coming to the world. We're forced to be intentional about keeping up our human connections. I've talked to quite a few people who report feeling the need to connect with people they love, friends, who they've, their relationships have atrophied because they just take them for granted. He says, Relationships get forged tighter by the pressure of mutual dread. Everybody hungers for tighter bonds and deeper care. And meanwhile, we have this... The questions that fuel Zen practice, at least at its best. The questions that bring us to Zen practice. But these are the, some of these are new. Are you ready to die? I spoke to this last week. I don't know if we could ever speak too much about it. Are you ready to die if your lungs filled with fluid a week from Tuesday? Would you be content with the life you've lived? Second question. What would you do if a loved one died? Do you know where your most trusted spiritual and relational resources lie? And third, what what role do you play in this crisis? What is the specific way you are situated to serve? And so we carry on. We carry on knowing that we can't know what's coming. For people who who might feel despondent after getting this profile of what could be coming in the next year or two, um, what about knowing that you're going to die? What about that? It's like it'd be like someone saying, "Well, don't 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 tell me I'm going to die someday. Don't tell me uh, about the certainty of death and the uncertainty of death, because it bums me out. I get depressed." Really? As a as a Zen practitioner, that's the position you're going to take? We need to look with eyes wide open about what might come ahead of us. We know the death is coming. We just don't know when. So let's not waste time. Let's use this I would say that most precious resource any human being can have, which is the practice of Zen, of the Dharma, more broadly. The practice of the Dharma. Let's use it. Zen is of no use to us unless we do it, unless we sit every day. We have to do it. It will make every difference in your state of mind, in your life. We'll stop now and recite the Four Vows.
1: (coughs) (coughs) All beings without number, I vow to liberate Endless blind passions I vow to uproot, Dharma gates beyond measure I vow to penetrate, The great way of Buddha I vow to attain.